0: I'm Liz Sauer, and this is Ghosts in the Burbs, a podcast of ghost stories from Wellesley, Massachusetts. A warning, adults who use adult language told me these frightening tales, these ghost stories, aren't for kids. The response to Ghosts in the Burbs' return has been overwhelmingly positive and supportive. You all showed up for me, and I cannot thank you enough. Not only did many of you take the time to rate and review the podcast, but so many of you donated to Patreon. Thank you doesn't even begin to express my gratitude. After the story, do stay tuned to hear a long list of shout-outs to all my new patrons. Now let's just get right into it, because I think we're all in need of a good dose of distraction right now. And as I said last week, we're headed right back to the beginning. We're on to ghost story number 50. Let me just preface this by saying that I never believed in any of this shit. All those haunted houses that my neighbors told me about, do you ever wonder what happened after they cut and run? After they hired a real estate agent to list the home and a professional interior designer to stage it? After they lugged all their clutter into a storage locker to present the prospective buyers with the illusion of minimalist living. After the purchase and sale was signed and the inspection complete. After the closing. When their moving truck pulled out of the driveway and the new owners pulled in. Do you ever wonder how long it took for the newbies to realize the hornet's nest into which they'd walked? I think about it a lot. After all, a lot of people tell me what goes on in their homes or what went on in their previous homes, and even I carry some guilt over not seeking the new owners out to let them in on the secret. I've even considered doing an anonymous letter drop in some of the worst cases. It just doesn't seem right to let people happen upon the horror unwittingly, especially if they have kids. As you know, we've had our own issues at home. An exorcist had to come to our last house to clear out the tapping, evil little thing that attached to me, I know I wouldn't have just moved and left new owners to deal with the issue. I mean, in that case, it wouldn't have mattered. The thing would have followed me wherever we went. But in a lot of cases, a haunting is attached to the house, not the person. Regardless, I know we left our last home free and clear. I can't say as much for the house we currently live in. But again, I'm the problem here. Claire haunts us, but when I leave, she'll leave. I've drawn firm boundaries around our property, but... Spirits slip in once in a while. Again, I'm the issue, the beacon. When I leave, they'll most likely follow. If you watch as much reality ghost hunting television as I do, then you're familiar with the inevitable moment when the current homeowners track down the previous owners to ask whether or not they've ever experienced anything out of the ordinary at the house. Sometimes they admit they had, and sometimes they don't. Simple it is not. Sometimes the house is haunted, sometimes its inhabitants are, and sometimes the two come together and create the perfect paranormal nightmare. The truth of it is that every haunted house is its own unique little shitstorm. I happen to know of one spectacularly awful case in Wellesley, which resulted in the haunted house actually being demolished. I wasn't able to tell you all about it before because there was a little tiny bit of litigation involved in which I was deposed to relay what the home's previous owner had shared with me, but that is all sorted and I cleared it with all parties involved, and so I can finally tell you what happened after Becca, her baby, and her husband moved out of that shadow man infested house and Margaret, her husband, and three daughters moved in. Do you all remember Becca? She was the very first person I interviewed for the blog. Becca of the perfect ponytail and seasonal appropriate crafts, the homemade baby food, and the inexplicable scratching in her house. Her property bordered the Crosstown Trail. It was the gorgeous five-bedroom on Wooded Estate with au pair suite and evil housemate. To recap, Becca, lonely and reeling after the birth of her first child and a move to the suburbs, began to suspect her home was being haunted by her grandmother. That was until she saw a shadow person in the form of a cowboy hat-wearing man reflected in her baby's tummy time mirror. It took time to convince her rather pig-headed husband, Jake, that she wasn't sliding into madness, but what he saw in their basement one night? and whatever it was scared him so much he never told Becca exactly what he'd seen, convinced him that their house was so haunted they had to sell it immediately. Becca and her baby never even returned to the house after that night. They lived in the Four Seasons in Boston until they found another home, this one across town off Weston Road. It's actually quite close to where I live now, and I sometimes see Becca and her little girl in the neighborhood. As for their old house... Jake dragged along a friend with him to gather some of their personal belongings, hired a company to haul out and sell everything that wouldn't stage well, and put the house on the market, with all the art and furniture included in the sales price. The house sold quickly, over asking price, to a family with three little girls, ages 8, 6, and 2. Becca and Jake failed to mention the reason for their abrupt move to the new owners. The new owner emailed me about a year after my interview with Becca. Margaret Reed was angry with me, and she didn't bother to hide it. We arranged to meet at Cabrata after exchanging several emails regarding the blog post I'd written about her house. The one in which Becca relayed the story of her haunting. I didn't want to meet Margaret. The tone of her emails led me to believe I was in trouble. They gave me that tight-chested feeling of being called down to the principal's office. Chris assured me that I most certainly wasn't in trouble, that she probably just wanted to hear exactly what Becca told me. Still, I was anxious and feeling a heavy sense of guilt. After all, I knew her house was haunted. I didn't know her, but shouldn't I have done something to reach out? As soon as I sat down across from her, at a table in the back corner of the bakery, Margaret confirmed that very point. "'You should have tried to contact me, at the very least,' I apologized quickly. I felt terrible that I hadn't bothered to get in touch. But in truth, it hadn't really occurred to me to do anything to help her until I'd read Margaret's email. Becca's was my first interview. At the time, I had no idea the reality-altering whirlwind that was about to swoop into my life via the blog. Had I interviewed Becca later on, surely I would have tried to get a hold of Margaret and put her in touch with Biddy or whoever else might be able to help her. At least, I like to think that's what I would have done. I explained as much to Margaret, stressing the fact that if I'd known then what I know now, I would have been more empathetic. When I interviewed Becca, I was just being a looky-loo, rubbernecker. As time passed and I met more people like Becca, that changed and I accepted the seriousness of the situation. I didn't want to seem like I was making excuses, but I needed Margaret to understand the context under which I heard the story about her house. In a weird way, Margaret reminded me a lot of Becca. For one thing, she rocked the same casual, outdoorsy style that quietly communicated wealth. She wore a Patagonia vest over a tissue-thin, long sleeve white t-shirt and really cool distressed boyfriend jeans, a pair of camo-patterned, rothy sneakers on her feet. Her dark, shiny brown hair was cut to skim her shoulders, and she wore it tucked tightly behind each ear. Her skin was smooth, save for the puffy dark circles under her eyes. I could tell just by the way she carried herself that she had her shit together. And I knew in a glance she could tell that I didn't. Margaret studied me, as comfortable with a pause in conversation as I was panicked by one. Another trait she shared with Becca. How many people have you interviewed for this blog? I shrugged quite a few, actually, but I don't post every story I hear. I hesitated. How did you hear about it? Wellesley Mother's Forum. I brought the girls to one of their events at the library, and I heard some women talking about it. She sighed. I recognized her house immediately, in that post. Really? It wasn't that hard to spot, the location on the Crosstown Trail stood out for one thing, but when I read Becca's description of the unexplained scratching, I was 99% certain I'd moved into that house. What convinced you that it wasn't just a coincidence? Becca telling you that she included the furniture and the sales price? It's not a common thing around here. We moved from a much smaller house in Needham, and I wanted to take my time with the new house, hire my decorator, and go room by room. Fancy, I said. Margaret smiled for the first time. I suppose so. I am truly sorry. I should have contacted you, warned you somehow. Margaret played with a sparkly eternity band on her ring finger. She pursed her lips and held them that way for a long moment before responding. I think I get what you're doing with your blog, but you just... She sighed again. Never mind. It is what it is, right? I appreciate your apology. If there's anything I can do to help you. And how exactly would you do that? I know some people who deal with this sort of thing. I don't know how much of the blog you read, but I actually had to have an exorcism done in my own home. Margaret's eyes went wide. Well, I didn't read that far. I'm happy to connect you with someone who can help. So you believe me? Yeah, of course. Margaret crossed her arms over her chest. "'I don't know if I even believe what's happened. Now that we've been out of the house for a while, it all seems so unlikely. I feel like we were under a spell, and I start to get hopeful that it was some sort of misunderstanding, but after reading Becca's description of that shadow man,' she trailed off. "'Would you consider telling me what happened?' Margaret blinked. "'For the blog?' No, I said quickly. I would relay what's happened to my friend Biddy so she can reach out to the appropriate help. I hesitated before adding. I have to admit, though, I am curious. (sighs) Let me grab another coffee and I'll tell you what happened. Margaret stood and began to walk towards the counter, then turned back. You know what, actually? You can put it on your blog. People in this town, or anyone considering moving to this town for that matter, should know what goes on here. I watched her join a short line at the counter and wondered if I should grab a coffee, too, but then reconsidered, thinking it would be awkward to stand in line beside her. A trio of young women walked into the bakery and solved the issue for me. I went to the end of the line behind them to wait my turn, then ordered another coffee and a sticky bun to go with it. The anxiety within me told me to order, two, arguing that it would help make me feel better, that it was a way to celebrate the fact that my apology had calmed Margaret's anger, I agreed with it and compromised, mentally agreeing to pick up another sticky bun on our way out, reasoning that it would be weird to eat two pastries in front of Margaret. Back at the table, Margaret sat sipping her black coffee. She agreed to have her story recorded, then watched me pull the sticky bun from the bag. I miss sugar, she said sadly. Why can't you have sugar? She smirked. How old are you? I'll be 39 next month, I told her. Well, I've got a couple years on you, you'll see. I can't even look at a pastry without gaining weight. Then I'd better make the most of it while I can, I said, before taking a bite of the pastry. So, where should I start? Movin' day, Margaret considered. Okay, but let me just preface this by saying that I never believed in any of this shit. I nodded in response and took a sip of my coffee. I thought people who saw ghosts were either looking for attention or they were just wildly mistaken about whatever it was they thought they saw. But I'll tell you what, something is very wrong in that house. We didn't really realize that for a while, though. We did some work on the place before we moved in. Redid the kitchen, freshened up all the bathrooms, put down carpet on the second floor. Oh, and we finished the basement. The house was built in 1930. It was well cared for, but the last real reno was done in the 80s. It desperately needed updating. It was one of the reasons we chose it. We liked that it felt private, even though the neighbors weren't far away, and there was a lot of room to make changes to the house without having to worry about over-improving the place and being unable to get our money back out when and if we decided to move again. Do you guys move a lot? Margaret held out her hand and tilted it back and forth. I get antsy when I don't have a project. Me too, I admitted. We're on our second house in three years, and I've already got an eye out for the next place. Are you currently living in the house that needed an exorcism? I nodded. And it actually worked? Definitely. Huh, Margaret said, her eyebrows knitted in concern. Ours didn't do a thing. I actually think it made things worse. I put the sticky bun down. You had an exorcism performed on the house? Dan was raised Catholic. We don't attend any church now, haven't since our wedding, but we thought it was worth a shot. But it made things worse? Yes. What exactly happened? That incessant scratching didn't make me think the place was haunted, but it was the first sign that something was wrong. I heard it in the kitchen first, and yeah, just like when Becca was living there, it came in threes. I looked everywhere. The cabinets were all brand new. I would have seen signs of rodents, but everything was clean. drove me insane. It took a while before Dan heard it. I think it matters how long you spend in the house. I work from home, so I was there a lot more than he was. And Lucy was only two when we moved in, so obviously we were home during the day for her nap schedule. When it began to keep the girls awake at night i called the exterminator dan thought there might be a family of squirrels in the walls we agreed that it was definitely louder than mice crossed my mind that there might be rats coming off the trail from the stream the exterminator didn't find anything did he i guessed nothing not even a hint of critters the night after he came to the house i heard the scratching coming from the ceiling in our bedroom for the first time but it had changed. It sounded like scuffling. I couldn't sleep, so I went to check it out. To get to the attic, you pull a ladder down from a trap door in the ceiling, in the second floor hallway. I climbed up and forced myself to poke my head up into the space to look around. I was peering all around, half-certain a rabid raccoon was about to attack me when I felt something grab my leg. It startled me so badly, I didn't even scream. I just hugged onto the ladder tightly so I wouldn't fall. Then I heard my oldest daughter, Jill, say, Mom, I think Amelia's in the basement. I turned to look, and she was already down the hall and going back into her bedroom. I rushed down the ladder and ran right down to the basement. Amelia was only four at the time, so it frightened me that she'd be wandering the house by herself. Margaret leaned forward in her seat. She wasn't down there. I checked everywhere. I even checked the alarm system and made sure the doors were locked to be sure she hadn't gone outside. By the time I got back to the second floor, I was in a real panic. I opened her bedroom door, and there was Amelia, sound asleep in her bed, just as she should be. So I went into Jill's room, and she was back in bed sound asleep too. Lucy, the baby, was safely cuddled in her crib. I So I pushed the ladder back up into the ceiling, and as I turned to go back into my own bedroom, I heard three distinct scratches from inside the wall, right beside me. It scared the hell out of me. I knew right then that it wasn't any animal making that noise. How long had you been in the house at that point? I asked. Uh, probably over a month, Margaret replied. And your oldest daughter... Jill, did she tell you why she thought her sister was in the basement? Margaret shook her head. No, she didn't remember waking up at all, let alone seeing her little sister. Mom, how could I have seen her go down to the basement if I was upstairs? It was a good point. Dan and I chalked it up to sleepwalking, though none of my kids had ever done that before. I reasoned that the move had unsettled her sleep, and I had a child gate installed at the top of the stairs. I definitely didn't want the kids wandering around the house at night. More than that, I didn't want them going outside. There was the stream and the trail. The woods. Margaret shuddered. It was spooky. The weirdest thing was that after that night, the scratching throughout the house died down and concentrated in the attic. It woke me up every single night. Didn't bother Dan for a minute, though. He slept right through it. I had the exterminator back out and insisted he set every single size and shape of trap he had in the attic, even though I knew he thought I was crazy. And believe it or not, after two days, one of those traps caught a small raccoon who must have been squatting up there occasionally. No, he didn't. Yeah, he totally did. We all had to go get rabies shots on the off chance we were exposed to the raccoon's saliva. Ouch. It wasn't all that bad. Frankly, I was relieved. I thought we'd found a legitimate reason for the noises we'd been hearing. The exterminator set more traps, to be certain, but it turned out to be just that one animal. How long until you knew it wasn't just the raccoon making noise in the house? Not long. I woke up one night and couldn't get back to sleep, so I got up, planning to go downstairs to watch television and hopefully doze on the couch, but... When I went out into the hallway, I found the attic ladder pulled down, halfway. It hadn't totally unfolded, but it was open. Ugh, I breathed. That is super creepy. Yeah, I woke Dan up and made him go and check to make sure there was no one up there. It didn't happen every night after that, but maybe like three times a week, I'd get up in the morning and find the stairs pulled down. There was nothing wrong with that door, our handyman took a look at it. He told it was functioning perfectly and suggested that one of the kids must have been screwing around with it. Didn't have an answer for me when I asked how they could possibly reach the string, though. Well, did the scratching stop completely after you got the raccoon out of there? Uh, yeah, the scratching stopped. But then we began to hear knocking noises. Those were pretty much concentrated on the first floor, though like on the actual floor. It was weird. But anyway, the attic. Once I saw that shadow figure pop its head out of the darkness at me, we nailed the damn thing shut. Oh my God. Ugh, the baby woke me up around three in the morning. I heard her over the monitor. I went out into the hallway and found the ladder all the way down. I had to walk past it to get to Lucy's room, and it, you know, gave me pause. I looked down to tie my robe, and as I did, I thought I saw movement up near the ceiling, you know, in the hole where the ladder should be. It startled me, but I stood still for a few seconds just watching that hole and didn't see anything else, so I figured it was just a trick of the light. Lucy was beginning to get loud, and I moved to fold up the ladder and was just about to push it up into the ceiling when the shadow figure sort of lunged out of the darkness towards me. I screamed and crouched down, covering my head thinking it was going to attack me, but when it didn't, I stood back up and slammed the ladder back up into the ceiling and ran to get Lucy. I brought her back into our bedroom and woke Dan up. He didn't hear you scream? Margaret shook her head. Weird, right? I told him to go check on the older girls while I called the police. He wanted to go up in the attic himself, but I would not let him. Just like Becca, I commented. Yeah. Yeah. It was another reason I knew it was our house after I read the blog. She hoped it was a real man, too. As terrifying as that would have been, you know, I just hoped it had been a man who'd been hiding in the attic all along. I dragged blow-up mattresses into our bedroom for the big girls and set up Lucy's pack-and-play. They slept with us for at least a week after that. But the funny thing is, we didn't hear anything else in the attic for a long time after that night. After that night, the shadow man started to appear around the house. How often did you see him? Margaret considered the question. I didn't actually see him again. He targeted the girls, each of them differently. How so? Well, he scared the hell out of Jill. It got to the point where she wouldn't go anywhere in the house alone, even the bathroom. Then one afternoon, she'd just gotten home from school, and I asked her to empty her backpack in the mudroom. I was in the kitchen fixing a snack when I heard her start screaming. It was the most frightening sound I've ever heard. I thought, I don't know what I thought. I I ran into the mudroom and found her crouched against the door, covering her face with both hands. "'He's here! He's here!' she started shouting. I spun around, thinking there would be a man standing right behind me, but the room was empty." Amelia had followed me, though, and was standing in the doorway, wide-eyed, staring at her sister. I pulled Jill up and kept asking, Who, Jillie? Who's here? But she was inconsolable. I moved the girls back into the kitchen because Lucy was in her high chair and I wanted to get eyes on her. And when I finally calmed Jill down enough to tell me what had happened, she told me she'd been pulling her homework folder out of her backpack when she felt someone pat her on the back. She thought it was me, and she started telling me about her day at school, and when she turned around, she said there was a big man standing there, towering over her. She said he was all black like a shadow, and he didn't have a face. Oh, Margaret, that's awful. Yeah, it is, but the worst part about it was Amelia's reaction. She sat there, crunching away on goldfish crackers, listening to her sister, and when Jill was done, she goes... He doesn't want to hurt you, Jilly. He just likes to be near us. That's why he rubbed your back. He wants what's best. Uh Uh-uh. Yep. Then she told us that he loves the baby the most. Oh my god, did you just get the fuck out of there right then? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to, but we couldn't just leave immediately. We don't have any family in the area, and we hadn't met many people in town yet. Certainly no one we could tell we had a shadow man in our home stalking our daughters. It was just so freaking spooky. I drilled Amelia about it. I mean, as much as you can drill a four-year-old. What did she tell you? She said she could sometimes hear the man even if she couldn't see him. Especially in the morning, when she first opened her eyes. He would do silly things with her stuffed animals. She said he could make them dance, and that's when he would tell her things. He would pretend to do the stuffed animal voices, just like Daddy does. I made a noise of disbelief. Did your oldest daughter see him again? If she did, she wouldn't admit to it. Margaret stared out the front window of the bakery, oblivious to the cars and people passing by. In a low voice, she continued, Jill changed. She was quiet and sullen one moment, and then bubbling over with manic energy the next, but not happy energy, more frantic, amped. She and Amelia began to play in the basement more and more. I was actually happy about it because the activity in the house had focused upstairs, so I mistakenly thought they were better off down there. Obviously reacting to the look on my face, Margaret explained, "'It wasn't like things were happening every single day.' There were lulls. Right when I would get serious about getting them out of there, things would calm down and make me think the strangeness had passed. And I mean, denial is a beautiful thing, until it isn't, right? I'm an architect. I work only part-time, but you know how it is. There's no such thing as part-time when you work from home. So I was probably missing a lot of signs because I was just trying to keep my head above water. Anyways, we finished the basement really nicely before we moved into the house, intending it for a play space for the kids. There was a playhouse and a kitchen down there. I hung some cool swings from the ceiling that they loved, and I even put an old-fashioned green chalkboard on the wall because they love playing teacher. So this one afternoon while Lucy was napping and the big girls were at school, I'd just run a load of laundry in the basement and was straightening up the toys down there. The girls are responsible for cleaning up their own messes, but they clean the way a four- and a nine-year-old clean up, so I was sorting the toy bins when I noticed the chalkboard. It had a bunch of silly little girl drawings, kid stuff like sharks and mermaids, and some nonsense words, but beneath that, I saw that words had been semi-wiped away and then drawn over. It struck me because Jill is quite delayed academically. She was in third grade at the time, but she wasn't reading at all, save for a Handful of sight words. And yet, Margaret trailed off. What did it say? I pressed. It said, I promise not to tell. Three lines of the same sentence. I promise not to tell. And there was no question that it was in Jill's handwriting. A million things flew through my mind at once. My first thought was that some pervert had done something to her. That certainly is not a sentence that a nine-year-old little girl comes across. She copies words or phrases out of her picture book sometimes, but she can't read what she's writing. And what child's picture book would include a sentence like that? I took a picture of the chalkboard and sent it to Dan. He was completely freaked out, too. Would Jill tell you what it meant? Um, She clammed up at first. We promised her that she wasn't in any trouble, that we just wanted to know how she wrote a sentence like that. If she knew what it meant, where she'd heard such a thing. Finally, Dan threatened to take away a trip to Chuck E. Cheese that had been planning for a long time, and that made her crack. And? She said the shadow man told her to write it. Jesus. When I asked her what she wasn't supposed to tell, she just started crying, That was enough for me. I called her pediatrician, and we got right in with a child psychologist. I wasn't going to mess around with a nine-year-old little girl keeping a secret some shadow man told her not to tell. You're a good mom, I said quietly, meaning it. Margaret sniffed. If I was a good mom, I would have gotten us out of that house a lot sooner. Look, from my own experience with all this weird stuff, so much of it only makes sense in retrospect. The puzzle doesn't fit together until it does. And the sort of haunting you're describing sets little fires that you can keep putting out until you can't. I'm sure that once you saw what it all added up to, you reacted. We had a fucking inferno on our hands by the time we reacted, Margaret replied bitterly. I'll leave out a lot of those little fires, as you call them, including that useless house exorcism, and tell you exactly where it all led. It was one of the quiet weeks when everyone seemed to be doing just fine. There hadn't been any incidents with the girls. Jill seemed like she was in a good place. Amelia hadn't mentioned the shadow man at all. But then something woke me up in the middle of the night. I don't know what it was. My eyes just flew open and I knew something was terribly wrong. I got out of bed intending to check on the girls and when I got into the hallway, I almost had a heart attack. The attic ladder was down, which was impossible, right? Because I made Dan nail it shut after that shadow lunged out at me. Not only was it down, one of Amelia's stuffed animals, this blue whale she was obsessed with, was at the base of the ladder. I ran and climbed the ladder without thinking. It was pitch black up there, but there's a bulb at the top with a string pole, so once I got up there, I had a little light. I searched the attic, certain that I would find Amelia up there, but she was nowhere to be found. I was at the far end of the house when I heard the ladder slowly creak closed and then slam shut into the attic floor. I've never been that frightened in my life. I tried to push it back down, but it wouldn't budge, so I began stomping on the ceiling and screaming for Dan. He was up and pulling the ladder down within seconds, but before he even had it all the way down, I screamed at him to go check on the girls. He was coming out of the baby's room and already opening Amelia's door before I'd stepped off the last rung. When he stepped out of Amelia's room, he was frantic. He strode across to Jill's room, poked his head in, and said, They're gone. Are you sure they're not in the attic? We ran downstairs, screaming their names. The alarm hadn't been triggered, so we were relatively certain that they couldn't have gotten outside. Dan opened the basement door, but it was pitch black down there, so he ran back up to our bedroom for his cell phone to call 911. I wanted to go with him, wanted to offload the entire problem on the police so they could just fix everything with a reasonable explanation look the girls are back in their beds i wanted them to tell us you overreacted they were just snuggled under all the blankets as i watched him run upstairs something drew me to the basement door i stared down into the pitch black and something inside me knew the girls were down there but i did not want to go find out why i wanted the police to do it for dan to do it anyone but me Margaret absently reached up to wipe a tear from her cheek. They were down there. I found them huddled in a small space between their playhouse and the wall. There was just enough room for them to all fit back there with their little legs pulled up to their chests. Even the baby, even two-year-old Lucy, sat there still as a statue. "'What in the world are you doing sitting down here in the dark?' I demanded, scooping up the baby." Amelia started crying, and Jill put a hand on her leg to comfort her. We tried to be good, Mommy, she told me. We were so good all week, so he wouldn't hurt you and Daddy. I promise we didn't tell anyone, but he's mad now. We came down here to hide. No, I groaned. Yeah, we waited in the kitchen for the police to arrive. They checked the house, and we left when they left. Haven't been back since. Margaret suddenly looked exhausted. That was almost a year ago. We've been in a hotel since, but our new house should be done in about a month. It's not ideal, but what can we do? Did you sell the house? Margaret's face darkened. No, I would never do that to another family. No one should live there. What Becca and her husband did to us is despicable. We're suing the shit out of them. Margaret was true to her word. Shortly after they moved into their new home, they leveled that shadow man-infested house and had a high-end landscaping design company plant a mix of trees and shrubbery on the land. They gifted that property to the town so that it might be used as a public park space, an extension of the Crosstown Trail. They turned over the deed with the iron-clad provision that it is never, ever, ever to be built upon. I drove by the spot recently. It was beautifully done. In a few years, you won't be able to guess that a house once stood there. The couples settled out of court. From what I understand, Becca and her husband were quite apologetic and compensated the reeds for their troubles appropriately. I don't blame them, knowing how deep the reed's pockets are, and how far they could afford to take the suit if they wanted to. I'd like to take a moment to express a huge thank you to all of my new patrons on Patreon, It is your support that makes this podcast possible. I have a bunch of shout outs here and I'm going to do my very best with all of your names. Sincerely, thank you so much for your generosity. David Grinstead, Miranda Hester, Anna Magdens, Lori Montgomery, Jessica Irwin, Christy Fleming, Audrey Pendleton, Melanie Beasley, Ariana Allen, John Cook, Jennifer Laverty, Kaylee Stafford, Lisa Davidson, Kimberly Randall, Candace Brown, Nan Gardner, Caitlin Nagel, Leslie Jensen, Kelsey Driscoll, Jess Croner, Jill, Allison Petherick, Winter Hobach, Kristen Peters, Natalie Hoskins, Karen S., Miriam Vargas, Lisa Morgan, Beverly Greer, Tony DeRosa, Rebecca Hoffe, Bridget Cameron, Stacy Irwin, Code Monkey, Annalise, Michelle Salazar, Lena Wickberg, Rachel Latimer, to turn the page even, uh, Kristen Jorgensen, Jenna Kampfschultz, Anna Booten Cooper, and Victor Valentine. Sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your incredible support. This has been Ghosts in the Burbs. Good night, sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.